The text for this afternoon's sermon is chapter 1 of Colossians, verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And after we've heard the preaching of the gospel, we will respond by singing hymn 81, stanzas 1 through to 7. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, you're in the desert, and it's hot, and you're thirsty, and all you can see stretching in every direction is sand, hot, dry sand. And someone calls to you and says, come here. I've got this old rusty can, and I can tip it over. And a few drops of dirty, sandy water will come out onto the tip of your tongue. A few moments of respite before you die of thirst. And then somebody else calls out to you, come here, follow me. Because on the other side of the sand dune, there are just literally oceans of pure, fresh Water, enough to satisfy your thirst a million times over. And there's enough left after you've drunk deeply to plunge into and to swim in and to refresh yourself and to surf on and to dive deep down into and to immerse yourself in. Which one of those two are you going to follow? Which one of those two voices will you listen to? I suspect that even the children understand that it wouldn't be the one that's offering the drops, right? And that sums up basically the difference between faith and unbelief. There is a reason why the scripture says the fool says in his heart there is no God. Because sin is foolishness. It's a bad choice. And people sometimes talk about blind faith, but it is actually unbelief that is blind. And that was a problem for the church at Colossae. They loved the Lord, but they were in danger, at least some of them were in danger, of falling for a poor, miserable substitute for the gospel. They were in danger of falling for people that wanted to take their eyes off the glory of the gospel, the glory of Christ, and who wanted to call them in the direction of something that was absolutely worthless. Now, Paul writes this letter to the church, which he did not plant. It was probably planted by the minister Apophras that we read about in chapter 1, verse 7. A while back, Paul had spent three years in Ephesus, and from Ephesus, the gospel, as he preached it there, spread throughout all Asia. And if we look at chapter 2 of our book, Colossians, we look at chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I haven't seen you 
face to face. So this is a church which he has not personally planted or ministered to. But he's heard about them. He's heard about their love for God, their love in the Spirit. And he's also heard about the dangers that they're facing. What is this danger that they're facing? It's kind of hard to tell exactly what it is. We get little ideas or tidbits of information as we go through the the epistle or the the, the letter. In chapter 2, verse 8, for instance, he warns them. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So there's that. Some people are pushing vain philosophy and empty deceit. Then in chapter 2, verse 16... He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or new moon or a Sabbath. These are a substance of the things to come, but these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to, to Christ. So there are some people that want to stay in the Old Testament, in the shadows, and they're denying the New Testament, the light which is in Christ. And then in verse 18 of chapter 2, He says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head. So every time, it's some strange idea in opposition to Christ. People are selling something which is drawing people away from looking at and focusing on Christ. And as we read through the epistle, we also learn that these people were pushing the the idea of some kind of mystery. Mystery religions were really popular back then. And some people were going around saying, you know, what we're teaching, our philosophy and our rules about food and drink and our asceticism, which means you deny all earthly comforts, and our worship of angels and our visions, it's all packaged up into this really cool, mysterious teaching which only some people can understand and can have access to. And so this false teaching was telling people that if you know certain things, and if you do certain things, then you are part of an exclusive club of super spiritual people that have access to God. Now what does Paul think of this? Well, look at verse 23. He says, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. Self-made religion. This is just made-up stuff. This is rubbish. This is just man's imagination and man's will and man's glory and man's ideas and man-made religion. And Paul says, People of God, turn your backs on that junk. Because you have something which is way, way better. You have heard the word of truth, he says in verse 5 of chapter 1. And truth is not some, some abstract concept. Truth is a person. Truth is the Lord Jesus Christ. You've heard the word of Christ. You've heard him speak to you. And true knowledge is not 
in some esoteric doctrine or, or set of practices, but look at what he says in verse 9 of chapter 1. He says, I've been praying that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, what happens when you know God's will and all wisdom and understanding? Look at verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's what the true gospel teaches and does. It's a, it's a virtuous cycle. The more you know God, the more you are changed by him after his image, and the more you live in righteousness and in holiness, and the more you walk in the ways of the Lord, pleasing him and serving him, the more you come to know him. And that's the difference between true religion and the fake stuff. False religion cannot change hearts, cannot transform lives. False religion will always only be able to pretend. And so Paul basically says in chapter 1, if if knowing God is going to change your life, then let me remind you about him. And so he goes on in verse uh, 13 through to verse 23, and he just sings this glorious hymn of praise to God and specifically to God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you read through those words, which we did read through, you see that Paul says that everything is in Christ and everything is through Christ, and everything is from Christ, and everything is for Christ in the Christian life. And verse 21, he talks about the fake stuff. Once you were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And that's where you stay if you follow heresies and false doctrines. But when you know Christ, when you are found in him, when you lose yourself and when you find Jesus, then you are transformed. You are transferred from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son. And that glorious promise is not for some tiny little group of people that are super spiritual. But this glorious truth is a foundation, a sure foundation upon which every man, woman, and child can build their lives and their relationships and their families. It is a truth which is not for some, but which must be preached publicly to every creature under heaven. That's what Paul's doing together with the other apostles. Look what he says in verse 23. A hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And then as he comes towards our text, which is verse 28, he says, you want to talk about mysteries? Well, I'll tell you a mystery. I'll tell you about this mystery, verse 26, a mystery which was hidden for ages and generations, but now has been revealed to the saints of God. What's the mystery which is now revealed? 
To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. What does that mean? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Well, we know what the scriptures teach. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We were created to reflect God's glory. We were created to live for God's glory. We were created to live and breathe and move and have our being immersed in the glory of God. That's what we were made for. It's like a fish. A fish was created to swim in the water of the oceans or in the waters of the rivers and lakes. And without the water, the fish dies. And so it is for, for the human being, for man. If he is not living in and for and by the glory of God, there's nothing left but death. Man in his fallen nature, is like the moon without a sun. It can't reflect anything. Now, if the scripture speaks about sin in terms of falling short of God's glory, it also speaks about salvation in terms of falling back into that glory. As we go to Romans chapter 5, Paul says, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. See, that's the gospel. The bad news is we've fallen short of the glory. The good news is that Jesus came, and we have now in him the hope of restored glory. And that's why Paul says to the same church, the Romans, in chapter 8, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's only one way out of darkness to the light. There's only one way out of death to life. There's only one way out of misery to glory. And that way is the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. That way is the one whom we proclaim Christ in you, the, the, the hope of glory. What riches, what glory, what a message the church may proclaim. Christ in me and I in Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And as we heard this morning, a reference to 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter tells the believers, he says, listen, you're suffering now, but you know what? Even though you're suffering, you have a hope of glory, which is so wonderful that you can rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Paul says in verse 27 that this good news about the hope of glory is not just for a small group of super believers, it's not just for the Jews, but it must be made known among the Gentiles how great it is. It's for the world. It's for a multitude that no one can number from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language. And because Christ is the only hope of unspeakable and eternal glory for every creature who is groveling in the shame and misery of his sin, 
therefore the church will do nothing else but proclaim Him. Therefore, every faithful preacher will do nothing else, will want nothing else but to know Him and to declare Him Christ and Him crucified. You see, some people preach mysteries. We preach Christ, says Paul. Some people preach works and rituals and ceremonies. We preach Christ. Some people preach visions and vain imaginations of the human heart and human traditions. But we preach Christ. Some people want to be real woke. They want to be real culturally relevant and acceptable. They want to offer entertainment, which attracts the sinner. Words and music, which appeal to the sinful human heart. But we preach Christ. Paul says, him we proclaim. And the verb that he uses is deliberate. There's a deliberate contrast in this verb. It's not, it doesn't imply the instruction on religious rules of life. But it has the, the taste, the savor of this verb of a declaration, an announcement of a herald. So you have as of today, a new preacher, a new pastor. Who must he and every faithful preacher preach? Now, the, the church has been afflicted for hundreds and even thousands of years with men who are raised up thinking that they ought to preach themselves and their experiences and their brand and their ideas about church growth and about liturgy and about this and about that and whatever comes out of their imagination. But God calls his servants to preach Christ. Because the name of Jesus is the only name under heaven by which man must be saved. The name of Jesus is the name which is above every other name. The name of Jesus is the name at which every knee must bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. It is Jesus Christ who is the only mediator between God and man. Christ in us is our only hope. God would come, transform us from dead sinners into living children of God. He would come and make a home in our hearts, living in us by his Holy Spirit and turning us into the very temple of God. There's no one else whom we can preach because there's no one else who God's people must listen to. To whom else can we go? He has the words of eternal life. In congregation, if that's true, if your pastor, if your preacher must preach Christ, then what does that mean for you? How should you see worship? Well, it means a lot of things. One of the things it means is that we need to come together with hunger and with thirst. We must come with a deep desire and a healthy appetite for the bread of heaven. Now sometimes, usually about five minutes before supper, the little kids come running up to daddy or mommy and they say, can we have a candy? Can we have a treat? Can we have this? Can we have that? And I think every parent knows that we give the same answer. We say, no, we're about to eat. We're going to have supper soon. We're going to have lunch soon. 
It's not a good time for candies. Why not? Because if you fill yourself up on candy and treats, you won't eat your supper. And that goes for us too, brothers and sisters. If we fill our hearts with the things of the world, we can destroy our spiritual appetite. If we sit there swallowing the lies and the falsehoods of human religiosity, we can maybe even become kind of sick of wanting to hear more pure preaching of Christ. If the preacher is proclaiming Christ, let's come with a healthy appetite. Let's show up on time. Let's desire to hear the very voice of Jesus speaking to us in the preaching of the gospel. And let's embrace that word. Let's love that word. Let's delight in that word. Let's have a thirst for that word. Now, how does the preacher proclaim Christ? Well, Paul continues in our text, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Warning and teaching. That kind of lines up with how the gospel has always been proclaimed. Repent, that's a warning. Believe, that's a teaching. It's very simple. Warning is this. Hate sin. Teaching is this, love Christ. That's the double-edged sword of the gospel. The gospel comes and it confronts sinners in their sins. And it calls them to to repentance. And it warns the believers against heresies and false doctrines which turn our sight, our vision away from Jesus. And then the other side by which the sword of the Spirit cuts is to call people to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to submit to him, to love him, and to do everything that he commands. Did you notice in our text how many times the word everyone shows up? Three times. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The gospel is not some mysterious, special Knowledge for a super spiritual group of people that only some can get into. The gospel is for every creature under heaven. When Paul stands in Athens, in Acts chapter 17, he says, God commands all people everywhere to repent. And that means that the gospel of Jesus Christ, which comes from this pulpit, is not just for you. But God is calling the city of St. Albert to bow the knee and to confess his name. God is calling the population of Alberta and all the people in Canada to confess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to repent from their sins and to believe in him. Everyone, everyone, everyone must be warned And must be taught. And we who are in Christ. We need to be warned as well. Minister's job isn't just to stroke our egos and say, you know, you're just doing a wonderful job. Or just, well, you know, it's it's hard, isn't it? And 
and I'm here for you. And, and, and Jesus understands how difficult things are. Yes, there's comfort. Yes, there's encouragement. But there's also warning. It's part of the job. The warning is this. Hate sin. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's the warning. And we need to hear that over and over. Well, how should the preacher proclaim Christ? And how should he warn everyone, teach everyone? Well, it says in our text, with all wisdom. And that can mean with all wisdom in the sense of the manner in which he preaches and proclaims Christ. A pastor preacher is a a doctor of the soul. He has to know how to dose the right dose of the right doctrines at the right moment, the right balance of of warning, of admonitions and, and comfort and consolation. And he requires wisdom from the Holy Spirit to do that. And because of that, he requires and needs your prayers that you would pray to God to help him to do that. The preacher needs to know the difference between warning and interfering. Not just the preacher, but also the elders as they come in our homes and apply the word of God in our lives. We need all of us to know the difference between warning and minding people's business and, and being a one who dominates and, and, and tries to tell people what to do rather than being an example for the flock. It requires wisdom. We can also look at this with all wisdom from another way. Not just in the manner in which the preacher proclaims, but the content of what the preacher proclaims. The preacher must not proclaim his ideas, his plans, his goals. Look at verse 9. The day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with what? With the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And if we turn ahead to chapter 2, verse 3, what do we read there? That in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So it's very simple. Proclaiming Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom is simply to point to Jesus. Simply to call people to turn aside from everything else, to give up everything else, and to seek Jesus. And congregation, if that's the job of the preacher, and what's our, what's our job as a, as a church? Well, our job is to listen, isn't it? To hear. But not just to, to listen, not just to hear, but to take it and to embrace it and to live it. The Christian life is a life of constant repentance and faith. It is a life of constant putting to death of the old nature and by God's power growing in newness of life and the new nature. It is a constant movement away from darkness and towards the light, away from death and embracing life. And in chapter 3 of this epistle, Paul says, set your minds on the things that are above. Not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What's he saying? He's saying repent and believe. He's saying hate sin, love Christ. So brothers and sisters, when the preacher preaches, 
when the elders bring the gospel into our homes and lives, when the deacons encourage us in the word. And we need to listen to the words of the apostle in Hebrews 13. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, you know what's one of the toughest things for a deacon, an elder, or a pastor, a preacher? One of the toughest things is when we, who are weak, sinful men, earthen vessels, when we go time and time again, and we bring the word of Christ, and we shine the light of the word of God into the path, onto the path of the sinner. And the sinner nods his head and and protests that that's exactly the way they want to do things and the way they want to live. But month follows month and years, years follow years. And there is no change. That's hard. How long have you been under faithful preaching? How many weeks, months, years, decades have you been hearing Jesus Christ speaking to you in the preaching of the gospel? What is that doing to you? What has it done to you? Sometimes we meet saints who have spent their entire life under the preaching of the gospel. And they're angry people. Or they're the worst grumps you can imagine. Or they're always bitter and complaining. And sometimes you look at someone like that and you say, what has happened? See, brothers and sisters, it's not enough that the church through her ministers proclaims Christ, that the elders and the deacons in our homes proclaim Christ. It's not enough that we are warned and that we are admonished and that we are taught in all wisdom. We as listeners, we need to to reach out and open our hands and we need to embrace that message. And we need to do that prayerfully. We need to say, oh God, take your word and apply it in my life. Oh Holy Spirit, take my life and transform it by the power of your word. Is that how you come to church? Is that how you study your Bible? Is that how you read the scriptures? Is that how you listen to sermons? Do you want God to come into your life and shake it up and tear out the things which are useless? Or are we sometimes listening to the preaching of the gospel defensively saying, don't enter this part of my heart. The door's closed to the light of the gospel. I want to keep this foul, dark, horrible thing, which is my favorite sin. See, brothers and sisters, your deacons, your elders, and your preacher, your pastor, want you to be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the whole goal. That's what Paul says in our text as we come to the end of it. Why does he proclaim? Why does he warn? Why does he teach that we may present everyone mature in Christ? Some translations say perfect in Christ. What does it mean? Well, look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20, the Great Commission. He says, go out 
Proclaim the gospel to the whole world. Baptizing and teaching that they may keep all that I have commanded you. The baptizing has to do with repentance. The repentant sinner is washed by the blood of Jesus. Baptism talks about that. And the teaching has to do with loving and serving Christ more and more. If you love me, says Jesus, you keep my commandments. Well, how do we love God more? How can we love God more and more? Well, if you think of a a lamp in the living room that's not plugged in, the lamp can desire all at once to shine and become brighter and brighter, but if it's not plugged in, nothing's going to happen. You can even actually plug it into the outlet, and if there's no power to the outlet, it can be plugged in, but nothing's going to happen no matter how much the lamp desires it or sweats for it. What needs to happen for that lamp to to blaze and to illuminate the room in a beautiful, glorious light, what is necessary is that power has to flow into that lamp. That's the way it is with the Christian life. We can't love. We can't live in holiness. We can't keep God's commands by ourselves, by our own effort, by our own sweat, by our own attempts. Just like that lamp that's not plugged in or that lamp that's plugged into an outlet, which isn't on. But when the power of God flows into our lives, then things happen. And how does the power of God flow into our lives? Well, it's through the preaching. When we come into the presence of God, when he speaks his word to us, things happen. When Moses was up on the mountain with God, the longer he stayed, the more he shined. And so it is with God's children. The more time we spend with Jesus in personal prayer, in prayer with husband or wife, in prayer and Bible reading with the family, in Bible studies, and in especially in corporate worship, God uses all of those things. As we're in his presence more and more, things start happening. The power of God flows into our hearts and lives. And we begin to shine in the darkness of this world, like stars in the firmament. That's the whole purpose of preaching Christ. And that's what your office bearers desire for you. And children, that's what your parents desire for you. Why did they bring you to church again this afternoon? They want you to hear Jesus. Because when Jesus speaks, he is the living God. And his word makes things happen. Let there be light. And there was light. Where God's word and God's spirit are, things happen. The more we are in God's presence, the more we hear his word, the more the Holy Spirit brings that word into our lives, the more we hate sin and the more we love Christ. That's what it is to be mature, to be perfect, to be whole. It is to live with an undivided heart. Not to live with one foot in the church and one foot in the world. Not to give some room for Jesus and some space for sin in our hearts. It is to have an all-consuming and total commitment to honor, to love, and to live for Jesus. 
You can't have it both ways. If you're on the moon and there are two spaceships, one of them is about to take off and go into deep space forever and ever. The other spaceship is about to return to Earth where there is life. You can't catch both of those spaceships at the same time, can you? That's an impossibility. But how many believers try to live as if it were possible? How many of us don't try to to walk in our own imaginations of our own sinful hearts and at the same time say we're following Jesus? The psalmist says, teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart. That's what it is to be perfect, to be mature, to be complete in Christ. An undivided heart. It's a gift of God. It's a promise of God. Ezekiel chapter 11. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. You see, a divided human heart is a false heart. It's a a shameful thing. It's It's a hypocrisy. Fervent lips and an evil heart our blasphemy against God. Jesus says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's not what we want for us. That's not what we want for our children. And so we proclaim Christ. Because that's what it's all about. Obeying Christ. Being filled with Christ. Living in Christ. Knowing Christ. Reflecting more and more the glory of Christ. I in Christ and Christ in me, the hope of glory. The more we understand that, the more we are driven to our knees to pray, oh Lord, help us. As the preaching of Christ comes to us from week to week, let your word by the power of your spirit transform us to be like him. Let your word, let Christ dwell in us richly. And just like your glory shined in the face of Moses, the longer he was in your presence, so let your glory shine more and more in our lives. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. The glory of Christ transforming our hearts, our minds, our relationships, our marriages, our families, our homes, our our work, our priorities, whatever we delight in, the, the way which we use our leisure time, the way in which we spend our money, the way in which we speak and think and act, more and more transformed. That's what happens when we hear Christ proclaimed. And that's what grows more and more in the life of the believer until the day when our faith is made sight and when we see The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen.